Father, thank you for this chance to um, talk about some of the most uh, enjoyable uh, parts of the scriptures to some and some of the most boring to others. I pray that you would uh, guide us in our uh, understanding, Lord, that today would not just be about gaining information um, that we file away in our pride um, closet, but that we would actually um, take in this information, help it to lead to transformation as we understand your word more and therefore understand you better. Uh, so God, uh, through your Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes to scriptures and would you guide me as um, I attempt to teach this. And Lord, we pray that this would be beneficial for all. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we're going to be jumping into our genres, which I'll define in a second. But what we want to do, uh, starting here until we end before Christmas, is jump into some specific genres of the Bible. So today we'll start with Old Testament narrative. Alright, we're at Old Testament narrative, and hopefully you grabbed some notes as you came in. Um, Alright, let's get going. Stories. Stories. We, we like stories. Um, I have two little girls, one who's too little to even know what a story is, but the older one loves stories. Um, and is loving them more and more. In fact, she, in her uh, storybook Bible right now, her favorite story is of Nana, which is Noah. Um, and she really loves to hear about Noah and is very uh, excited that, that Noah actually comes to our church as well. So she, she loves that. I don't think she's connecting a really long beard with Noah Tanner's kind of clean-shaven look at the moment. Um, but... Wanted to, to talk about stories this morning. We all love them. So we have phrases like once upon a time and you could be somewhere in public and hear someone say once upon a time and you're immediately cued, there's a story that's about to start. Okay? Or other phrases like there once was a prince, camel, whatever, a, a camel prince. Yeah. Okay? We, we, we see these cues. Um, call me Ishmael. Some of you don't know what that is, but that's a very famous First line of a novel. Anybody know which one? Moby Dick. Okay, call me Ishmael. That's how the book starts. It's pretty well known. Um, some of you will resonate with this one a little better. Long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Right? And then now you're ready for music and John Williams shows up and right? lightsabers and all that stuff. You know that cues a story. We love stories. There's another one you might be familiar with. It starts like this. In the beginning... Um, and there's actually, uh, as we talked about in, in the sermon today, there's two of those, right? Uh, Genesis and also in John. Um, this in the beginning, this, this thought that this is how it starts. Here we go, stories. And, and so um, we, we all like stories. We all love stories. We have different kinds of stories that we like, um, which is why some of you are really excited about Old Testament narratives and some of you are stifling yawns. But um, we are attracted to stories, uh, that leads us into three questions that we need to ask before we get into the meat of things, right? So three questions. What is a genre? And, and I went to the dictionary rather than trying to make up my own, and so the new Oxford American Dictionary defines a genre as a category of artistic composition, as in music or literature, and we, we could add uh, movies, we could add things like that, uh, characterized by similarities in form, style, or subject matter. It's actually a French word, and it's related to our word gender. Genre, gender, a kind, a distinction. 
Um, okay, so that's where we're going with genre. And as we study the genres of the Bible over the next, I think, eight weeks, uh, we're going to be studying specific genres. All right, so that's, that kind of gets us going. Here's the genres we'll be talking about. All right, and I think that's the proper order. We, we reserve the right to mix those up, but I think that's um, how we're going to go about them. Those are some genres. And could you get a different list than this? Yeah, you, you've got, I've got a book on Bible interpretation that has like 80 subgenres. So we could divvy this, this list up a little bit differently. But this is how we've decided to go with it. This sticks with um, the book Playing with Fire, uh, which we're using as a launching point for this series. Second question, what is a biblical narrative? Okay, distinctly biblical narrative. What's going on when we talk about a biblical narrative? Uh, this is a helpful, I think, uh, definition. Narratives are stories. And then this is where it, you, you get a little more specific. Purposeful stories. Retelling the historical events of the past that are intended to give meaning and direction for a given people in the present. Okay, and this is where we've got to be really careful. Too often, a story is a story, and that's all it is. It just it stays there in its little bubble. There's meaning inherent in the story. The author, the director, the editor, whoever, in telling a story, is trying to say something. Okay, something. And some of you are getting like, oh no, this is like English class, and now we're going to get all subjective. Okay. <laughs> What I want to say is this is more than just a story that you read and go, okay, that's nice, and you know it, and you file it away for trivia later on when you're playing some Bible trivia game, okay? This is told for a purpose, and it's not just about the past, but it was written as well to give meaning and direction for a given people in the present. All right, so why is this genre, why is this genre, Old Testament narrative, why is this genre important? Well, I'll just repeat it, we love stories, Okay, we love stories. When I was a kid, um, I was, thanks to my parents, a, a little Bible geek and loved the Old Testament narratives. So I tried to do Bible reading plans as like, I don't know, an eight-year-old. And I would just, uh, I just really want to go back and read about all the blood and guts and war stories in First and Second Samuel and the Kings and Chronicles because I absolutely loved the story that was going on um, in those, in those uh, books. Uh, this is why a few years ago in the high school group, we taught through the entire life of David because it's just a great story. And so why is the genre important? Well, because we love stories. It's, it's very important. Um, number two, the whole Bible is telling one story. So you should do something this afternoon, and that is read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and then go read Revelation 21 and 22. And look at the astonishing parallels. Books written 1,500 years apart, and one story is being told, which makes the Bible distinct from all other works of literature. One story is being told. The last two chapters, 21 and 22. So first three chapters of the Bible, last two chapters of the Bible. I would encourage you to do that. Well, more than 40% of the Old Testament is narrative. Okay, just the Old Testament. More than 40% of it is narrative. So that is the biggest chunk um, of any genre. There's, here's the 40%, okay? 21 books, either in full or in part, um, participate in the narrative section, okay? So just the sampling there of the books that have to do with narrative, okay? All right, more than 40%. And then these last three are all, if they come up, related, okay? So I, I'm going to say that Old Testament narratives are essential for understanding 
Jesus' ministry in the Gospels. They're essential for understanding the letters of the New Testament. And they're essential for understanding Revelation. So what I'm really saying is, you can't understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. Um, It is absolutely essential um, to have an understanding of the Old Testament to get fully what's going on in the New so many things open up for you. So let's say you're a new believer and someone tells you to read the book of John and then they tell you to read one of the letters, like Romans, and you start reading these things, you're going to have all kinds of questions that don't get answered unless you go back to the Old Testament. That's how important this is. And the storyline of the Bible is what, is what plays out here. And so we see a continuity between the Old and the New Testament. All right. Some things that we need to know. These are in your notes. Some things that we need to know. This takes hard work. So you have to be willing to commit to this, um, or you will be bored, you will be confused, um, you will be in a, in a place where it doesn't mean, the Old Testament narratives don't mean anything to you, because you must work hard. Some of you are in school, some of you were in school, some of you are teachers you know that you can read a book. And you can probably do pretty good on multiple choice questions. But if you're not working hard, that essay question is going to kill you. Because you've got to dig deep. And in fact, I love this quote by John Piper. Raking leaves is easy, but all you get is leaves. Digging is hard, but you might find diamonds. So we want to do more than grab a rake and just move the leaves around in the yard. Um, We want to grab a shovel. We want to get a pickaxe. We want to go at it. We want to get down into the dirt and find some diamonds. Because there are so many things in Old Testament narratives that are so relevant for our lives. So many good nuggets of gold, diamonds are down there. But we've got to be willing to work hard to go get them. Secondly, you must be familiar with the flow of the biblical storyline. You must be familiar with the flow of the biblical storyline. In poll after poll after poll, um, Americans in general and American Christians are, are shown to have a woeful lack of understanding of the stories of the Bible. Because too often we teach our kids these isolated stories that are supposed to teach a little moral lesson, and they never connect them. Um, we, this is why last summer we taught in the reality check, um, some of the, we had the kids vote on which kind of big favorite stories of the Bible they wanted to hear. And, and they found out so many things because they assumed their fourth grade knowledge of that Bible story was sufficient. We've got to know the, the whole sweep, the flow of the biblical storyline. It's so very important. And so I have something in your notes. And, and I know this is hard in the eyes. <laughs> this is just an example. And it was just me sitting there thinking through the flow of the, of the biblical story. I, I asked about half of it so that it would fit on one screen. But this just kind of shows what's going on in the Bible. Right? So if I give you some, some names of Old Testament characters, um, and this is not just trivia, right? I, I don't want you to just be like, yes, I can put them in order. <laughs> what I want you to do is to find out what the storyline is, is, is going on. What's going on here? How do we connect things? What does it mean? And how does it set the stage for the coming of Jesus in Matthew 1? So we've got to be familiar with the, the biblical storyline. Okay, and again, don't forget the centrality of context. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Do not forget the centrality of context. When you're looking at Bible stories, this is where we get bogged down, right? Either in lists of names, okay, as part of the narrative, 
um, or we get bogged down in geographical details that we have no clue, right? So reading the book of Joshua, and you're talking about the land being divided up, and this tribe gets this, where does, uh, what does this mean? And this is where hard work comes in, and also taking into the understanding of the context, which is why, commercial, you should come to Israel with us next April so you can have that context visually, all right? Come back, okay. Um, these are some of the context questions. I'm not going to belabor these. We covered this a couple weeks ago. Just making sure you know what's going, in, going on in and around the passage that you're at. So 1 Samuel 17 is where we're going to be in a few minutes. And to know the context, we've got to know what's going on. We can't just jump in, you know, get our blinders on and only look at 1 Samuel 17. We have to, to see what's going on around it. Okay? So those are a few of the things that we need to know. Um, again, this is another of our um, charts that kind of helps us go from the genre at the top, which is, we now know is Old, Old Testament narrative today, and bring it all the way down, and sometimes all the way down to even the very word. But the, the unit of thought, really, or the paragraph, is where this really comes in handy. What are we reading? Are we reading the Psalms? Are we reading Song of Solomon? Are we reading Isaiah? Are we reading Genesis? Are we in Leviticus? Where are we to help us figure out how to understand and to read this text? And this is where we're going to take straight from the book Playing With Fire, the three levels of narrative. Three levels of narrative. So we have a bottom level, which is the stories of individuals. And this is important, and it's most important for imitation and example. However, this is usually the only layer that most of us ever get to. Right? So we have a sermon series on Nehemiah, and all we're doing is pulling out nuggets for leadership. We're studying Joshua, and all we're doing is looking at the courage of Joshua. Okay, We're looking at Joseph, any, any of these things. All valid and good. But if we stay at the level of the individual, at this bottom level, we have a, a big chance of distortion, and we have a big chance of missing some of the bigger things that God has for us in the text. So hear me say this. I am not belittling studying Nehemiah to learn about leadership. But that's the lowest level. Okay, we, we've got to, got to get into more. The middle level is the story of God's people. So in the Old Testament, God's people, the Israelites. New Testament, God's people, the church. All right? The story of God's people. And this is most important for identity and heritage. And this is where we actually can connect our story to the biblical story. Because there is a deep connection. When we understand when we go back to the New Testament and we understand the foundations in the Old Testament, we see the connection all the way from the Old Testament stories through the Old Testament to the church, to the church of today. So our story is wrapped up in this story. So we find our identity and our heritage. That's the, that's the middle level. That's important. We need to look for these things as we're studying the scriptures. But the top level... There we go. The top level is the eternal universal plan of God. And I struggle with what to put in A here, but it's most important for understanding the universe. Like, this explains reality. This explains what's going on, not just in Orange County, not just in America, not just in Asia. This is explaining what's going on in the universe. So we need to see in narratives, in individual narratives, in, in chunks of narratives, in the entire Old Testament narrative, we need to see the plan, the sweep of what God is doing and what God is moving toward in the scriptures. Always need to have 
these views in mind. And sometimes, some stories are more given to the bottom level, but there's never a lack of the middle level and the top level. Often we have to really fight to find it. But if there's anything that's worth fighting to understand, it's this book. (laughs) Because this book was written by the God we worship, and to understand Him, it behooves us to understand this. So those are three levels of narrative. So keep that in mind when you're reading. Three levels of narrative that we're looking for. Okay, and then there's two aspects of narrative. And these get a little bit more specific. So A in your note, whoa, backwards. A in your notes is God is the hero. Oftentimes we miss this. Um, God sometimes is not mentioned in the story. Ever read the book of Esther? God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. Not once. Okay? There are stories where God is not mentioned. But our understanding of the sweep of the Bible is that God is the hero. Because how many of the heroes of the faith, go read Hebrews 11, okay? Think of the big names, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, right? Moses, Elijah. How many of those guys, you started to read the scriptures and you're like, this guy's a tool. <laughs> this guy... How can this guy be one of the heroes? When I was a kid, I thought he was great, but now I'm reading this, and he's, he's sacrificing his, his wife's reputation, they're cheating on people, there's all kinds of marriage. What's going on? Right? I thought David was a man after God's own heart. And so often, we, we, we get to this low level of the individual being the hero. No doubt, heroic things are done by individuals. But to help us understand, we've got to see God as the hero. God is the hero. Two mistakes. We look at narratives as models of how a believer should behave and we imitate their choices. Now, what I just said does not contradict with this, although it may seemingly do so on on the the face of it. Um, We've got to not just look at a story and the first thing we do is go, okay, how should I imitate? How should I behave? Because oftentimes there's nothing (laughs) to imitate and very little value on how we should behave. So an example that maybe some of you have used. I don't want to step on toes, but let's step on toes. Gideon's fleece in Judges 6, right? I'm putting out a fleece for God. If you read the story, that is not a faith-filled act. That is Gideon doubting God and not having belief in God, and so we should not imitate that example. That's not given to us to say, Gideon, what a great guy. What a good guy. We should imitate that example. We've got to be very careful that we don't do that. The second one is we over-personalize Old Testament narratives, and we are particularly prone to do this as Americans. Before this text means anything for us, we must know what it meant for them. So too often we approach the Bible and say, what does this mean to me? Or we ask the questions, what does this mean to you? It doesn't mean anything to you first, because it wasn't written to you. It was written for you, But it wasn't written to you. So you're not the Corinthians, right? We're not Israelites. So we've got to know what it meant then and to them before we know what it it means now and to us. Okay? So that's not to say we shouldn't personalize some of these things, but not at first and not primarily. Okay? Second aspect is it's best to take big bites. And, And what's meant by this is just understanding the sweep of the scriptures, okay? So you can't read one, sto- one chapter of Genesis and get everything you need to know about Abraham. Take a bigger bite. 
Now, that doesn't necessarily mean all at one time. I'm not telling you you have to read 20 chapters of the Bible or else your Bible reading plan is invalid. All I'm saying is take a big bite to understand what's going on in the narrative. Okay? This is like, how many of you have been late to a movie at the movie theater? Like, significantly. Right? Walking into, walking into the middle of an action scene, right? That's the worst. Whoa! Who's that? <laughs> Who, who's chasing? What's going on? We, we have no clue what's going on. Um, we need to take a bigger bite. We need to step back. We need to understand the whole of the narrative. So we look for patterns. If you read Judges 1 through 5, you see this consistent pattern. In fact, whoever wrote Judges um, in chapter 2, I believe, explicitly says, here's the cycle that the Jews went through, and then he starts the stories. So he says, oh, everything was great under Joshua, and the elders after Joshua, everything was great. But after that, the people turned away from the Lord. They turned away from the Lord, and God sent another nation in to judge them. They cry out to the Lord. He sends them a judge. The judge rescues them from the people, and there's peace. Then the people fall away, God's, right? So it's a cycle, and that really informs what's going on the whole book of Judges. We've got to see the patterns that are in there. And these last two are super easy for us to do. Don't allegorize, okay? This is not, the Bible is not Pilgrim's Progress, okay? Um, so you don't have all these guys with names that tell you exactly who they are right away, right? Mr. Worldly Wise, Okay? Take note. He's not a guy you listen to, right? That's, that's not what's going on in the scriptures. So we don't say things like, and the ten plagues represent problems in our lives. No, they don't. They were ten historical plagues that God put on the peoples of Egypt. Okay, that, that's what they were. Before they are anything for you, what they were to them is very important. So don't, don't allegorize. And it's, you know what? It's really easy to do this. This is easier than taking the time to do the hard work. It's really easy to allegorize or, or moralizing, which is very similar and is detrimental to our faith and to our children's faith. What we can learn from the story is that we are not to do, right? So this is where we tell our kids, and not without merit, okay? Learning how to, to be good, to do good, to not do, not do these things. But that is not the primary meaning of the text. The primary meaning of the text is not for you to immediately look at the moral lessons in the text, because okay? oftentimes there, there either is very little or no moral lesson, okay? or the moral lesson must follow the deeper understandings of the text. Because then all we're doing is we turn in to Joel Osteen, okay? and we're starting to teach things that are radically against the scriptures, but they're morals that I pulled out of the text. Okay? Um, so we've got to stay away from the, those moralizing things. Now, we learn good morals... In the Bible. They're presented. Okay? But moralizing is different. Moralizing looks like, I want my kids to be good. That's it. Now, I want my kids to be godly. Okay? First of all. You see how that's, that's, that's deeper? Anybody can be good. Um, and that's what happens when we moralize. But when we get deeper into the scriptures, we see that people aren't good. And so just to say to, to your little one, be good is not that helpful. We've got to go deeper. So don't allegorize and don't moralize. Now, there's so much more that we could talk about. So buy the book and read the book. But I want to take us to the story of David and Goliath, which has been my favorite story since I, apparently I was one or two, because my mom has 
I, this is one of the first things I learned was how to say, send me one man with whom to do battle. And my dad was Goliath, and I killed him over and over and over again um, to my little heart's content. I was David for Halloween, like when I was three or four. I love the story of David and Goliath. We do not have time to read the entire story of David and Goliath, because as you'll see, it's 58 verses long in just this one chapter. But what I want to do is maybe look at some of the levels that we see in the story of David and Goliath. So 1 Samuel 17, we're going to skip around like crazy, so you've got to follow along. If you read the first three verses, they give you the context of where everything is. Okay? And their names that we have no... Azekah, Soko, Ephes, Damim. Great. Okay? Skip that. Let's get to the action. Right? Now, this, this is where a, a study Bible... In fact, if you have an ESV study Bible right now, you might be looking at a map that ha, or on the next page that has where these places are that helps you formulate in your mind what's going on and where it's happening. Okay? So those are important things to see as part of the context. In verses 4 through uh, 10, we, we meet Goliath. Okay? And in the most descriptive description of a person in the scriptures, his armor and his, and his um, weapons are described. We see what he's saying. We've got the context now. This is the problem. This is the conflict. Here it is. And in verse 11, we see a very important phrase. When Saul, what's his position? He's the king. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly, what? Afraid. They're greatly afraid. And then we meet David, who we met just in the chapter before, but describes him. It's very, very clear. His dad is old. David's the youngest kid. He's a shepherd. He's not in the battle because he's young. Verse 14, David was the youngest. But David is going back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep. And he comes from Jesse with um, cheese and bread to kind of help the war effort. Okay, so we meet David. All right? David happens to walk in at the very time Goliath comes out and challenges the people of God. Right? So this huge giant of a man covered in armor comes out and screams over at the Israelites to come and do battle with him. And David hears him in verse 23. And then he begins to ask the questions of all the people around him. Again, we find out that the people are afraid. All right? This is, it keeps coming back. And David's response is unique. In verse 26, he ends by saying this. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Saul didn't say that. The guys in the army didn't say that. This young shepherd boy, who is not old enough to be in the army, is the one who's concerned for God. Okay, and then there's rewards for anyone who kills the giant. Then David's older brother gets mad at him in verses 28 through 30. We see jealousy. And David says, basically, that he'll fight Saul. And the word trickles through, right? And Saul hears it, finally, 40 days, and we've got a guy who's willing to fight Goliath. This is awesome. And then David shows up. <laughs> uh, who are you, pipsqueak? <laughs> okay. But David looks to Saul and he says, hey, hold on, before you judge me, I've killed bears and lions. I love it, the fact he's grabbed them by the beard and strike them. That's, it. That's crazy. I love that part. Okay? But, then he, but then David says why he's motivated. He's not motivated to go out there and win fame or even to get a wife. That might be a lower motivation because it ends up happening. But the end of verse 36, he says, for he, Goliath, has defied the armies of the living God. Second time he said that. Pattern. Notice the pattern. Okay, then David says, 
Yahweh delivered me from the lion, from the bear. He'll deliver me from this guy. Right? So then we remember the story. David tries on the, the armor. It, he can't do this. He's never worn this before. It's, it's, it's going to hinder his battle. So he says, forget this. He goes down to the brook. He gets five stones, which you can get if you come to Israel with us next year. And then he approaches Goliath. He approaches Goliath. And we have this, this basically trash talk episode between David, this little shepherd boy. It's, and he mentions he's handsome and good looking. Okay, so we've got this little cute kid and this massive beast of a man, right, looking across at each other. And the Philistine is just mocking. He calls him a little dog. He says, is he going to feed his flesh to the birds or whatever? He's, he, can't, he, he curses his God. And David says, I love this, verse 45, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. And that should mean game over. But he says, but I come to you with a tank. No. The bazooka? No. With some snipers, with arrows? No. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Picture this in your mind. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. I will give the, give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that I'm the man. That there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. And then David approaches, slings the stone, nails the giant, falls on the ground, takes his sword, chops his head off, which I thought about showing you all these great artists down through the years who have David holding the head, but I decided not to. Um, David beats Goliath. Now, here's what happens if you look David and Goliath up at Amazon for books. You've got business books. Okay? You've got self-help books. You've got Bible story books. You've got all kinds of crazy sociology things that are talking about you're the David and he's the Goliath, right? And so many of you maybe have heard, who's the Goliath in your life? Right? Who's the giant in your life? That's not what this is teaching. That's not what this is teaching. That takes, that takes away from the historic atmosphere here. This is actually happening. David killed a giant named Goliath and he did it not for his own fame but for the fame of the God that he served. Okay? So, so this is what's going on in the text. Okay. Sorry, I got excited. <laughs> bottom level. Bottom level. But we talked about the three levels. The bottom level and these are just observations. So hopefully as you've seen this you've actually been making some observations. And I made these at 10 o'clock last night. So, hopefully they're good. <laughs> okay? David is bold in God. It's very clear that his boldness does not stem from some machismo, like, oh, he doesn't have anything to be... He, he's a shepherd, right? Um, so he's bold in God. We see that on the bottom level, the level of the individual. He has faith in God in contrast to his brothers, the army and King Saul. So we see this, this faith that's not practiced by some and only practiced by David. He looks back on God's past faithfulness and is assured of present and future faithfulness. So I hope what we taught before does not mean that we're not looking for those kind of things. Like That's helpful to look at how David has looked on God's past faithfulness and looks forward to God's present and future faithfulness. Middle level, God's people are fearful. They don't trust him. Um, we see the king of God's people is not leading well. 
Uh, the Israelites ha- have a problem because if you read the rest of the Old Testament and you understand the narrative, they've not ejected all the peoples from the land as they're supposed to have done. They failed in that regard. Top level. Something like this. God uses ordinary, sometimes smaller young people to make his fame known throughout the world. This is God's program. His program is not to get a bunch of good biographies for TNT to make movies of. His goal is to spread his name throughout the world. Okay? Because David says that you may know there is a God in all of Israel. He says, in all the earth. That's what he's aiming at. And we also know from later texts, if you read the story of David, that God's going to set up David not only as a king, but as a forerunner of the man in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John who will go by the title of the son of David. Okay? Some really high-end things going on here that we've got to notice. So don't get stuck in 1 Samuel 17. See the scope. See the movement. And I've gone way too long, but we're going to go into our groups now. Uh, Adults that are staying in here, don't divide up into groups. Pastor Ron's going to lead you as a big group. Um, But we're going to go to our classrooms. I want you to go to Genesis 22. You're familiar with this story. It's a story of Abraham sacrificing, or not sacrificing, Isaac. Let's go in our groups, put into practice some of the things we just taught through. I know this is right away and immediate. And this is not meant to just help you do this for now, for 15 minutes. It's meant to help you read your Bibles all the time better. So put these into practice. Let's look at the bottom level, the middle level, the top level. Use observation, interpretation, application in that order as we've talked about. And let's examine what we can learn from Genesis 22. All right? Let's go.